is Saul. We often call him Paul, right? And either name is fine. Um, there was no like miraculous changing of his name when he became a Christian. It just kind of transitioned that way slowly over time. Um, and the first time we see him referred to him as Paul is actually in Acts chapter 13. And that's how most of us know him. Um, but really, he went by Saul the rest of his life as well. So that's how I'm going to talk that's how I'm going to talk about him today because the text that we're looking at talks about him that way. So don't be confused. That's who I'm talking about. But in Acts chapter uh, 8, the first part of what we're looking at, I, I want to look at a little bit what we know about him. And for several of you, I imagine that this is familiar territory. I'm sure you know Saul's his story, but I want to touch on a few things just to remind some of us or maybe you're less familiar with it. And in verse 1, look at what verse 1 of Acts chapter 8 tells us about this Saul guy. Um, at the very end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a disciple of the Lord, a Christian, is stoned for his belief in Jesus. And before he's stoned, he gives like this sermon that kind of is his, ends up being his farewell sermon. And the people get angry. They stone him. And as he's dying, he sees Jesus in the heavens uh, sitting on the throne and he prays to Jesus, receive my spirit. And at the end of that, we get to chapter 8, and it says that Saul approved this execution. He uh, heartily approves it. And so it says, on that day arose a great persecution against the church in general, even in Jerusalem, not just Stephen. And they are all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul... In contrast to that, he's ravaging the church, and he's entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. In a lot of ways, what Saul is doing sounds similar in the phrasing to like Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, like going from house to house, but he's doing something totally different. Instead of encouraging and taking in teaching, he's going from house to house, ravaging the churches and persecuting and, and giving his approval to various executions like Stephen's. Um, and so Saul, if we don't really know his story, is introduced as someone you don't want to cross paths with as a Christian. Um, there's, there's more that could be said about him. In, in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, which is our primary text for our time, is, says this in verse 1, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So this Saul guy, he's approving of executions. He's chasing people from house to house, arresting them. In Acts chapter 9, we find out he's still after it. You know, I think the phrasing is funny. He's still breathing threats and murder. He's not done. In fact, he is primarily in Jerusalem. That's the picture of like where Stephen is being stoned. Um, but he even is willing to make his way into what we would call Syria, right? Damascus. He's willing to travel a long way to chase down these people. Now keep in mind, they're being scattered from Jerusalem, right? Acts chapter 2, that's where all the Christians are. And as this persecution arises, they scatter except for the apostles in Acts chapter 8. They stay in Jerusalem. And so as these people are scattering, Paul's getting permission to chase them down. He's going to go after them. Um, and so what we see here uh, from Saul is 
someone that is very contrary to the Lord's plan. Um, is as a not even just ignorant or dismissive. He's actively against and fighting what the Lord is doing in the world and among his people. And so Acts chapter 9 presents us with a very clear picture of Saul, but it's obviously not by the end of chapter 9 we end up with a very different picture of Saul. And so 9 is really the transition. And so why I wanted to look at these three texts is because this is like, this is God's record of uh, Saul, him, and his transformation that we're going to talk about. And then these two end up being kind of Saul's recollection of his own change, his own conversion. And so uh, these are, as he's in various places of custody, he's giving his testimony here. And he gives them for different reasons, but I just want to focus in on his perspective of the testimony when we look at those. So why I had James read Acts 24 was because, if you uh, turn there with me, there's this one little phrase kind of nestled in Acts 24 that I kind of am zeroing in on as we look at Paul's or Saul's transformation. And that is actually uh, here in verse 10. So Acts 24 uh, sorry, not verse 10. Uh, well, now I've lost my verse here. Where am I? Acts 24. Da, 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 da. I know it's in there. Ah, okay. So beginning in verse 14. This I confess to you that according to the way which we call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Now we haven't talked about how he gets to this point, but you can see already Saul's transformation is stark to say the least. But look at what he says even after this. It's not that he just believes this stuff. It says in verse 16, So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So Saul's transformation, he touches on some of that. But then in verse 16, he says, But really, I'm living a life that allows me to have a conscience that's clear. Um, I don't know what every translation of this text may say, but it would be appropriate to say um, guiltless, guiltlessly, we, would, we might even say. You know, to have a guilty conscience is something that would bother most of us. And it seems like what Saul's saying here is, I don't have that. I've lived in such a way that I'm guilt-free. My conscience is not seared. It's not hurting me. So how does Saul get from like chapter 8 Saul, chapter 9 Saul, to someone who can say not just that, like, I've changed my mind, but I'm living guiltlessly, you know? Um, I think depending on your personality and your experiences, like, guilt may be something you struggle with. I don't know everyone intimately enough to know where everybody sits on that. But guilt is a real thing, and we have it for different reasons, and certainly I'm not addressing guilt in every sense of the word. But Saul is able to move from breathing threats and murder to believing the very thing 
that he was approving of executions for and chasing people down for, for doing and believing to saying that not only do I believe it, that I am guiltless in my conscience up to this point. So that's, that's what I want to talk about is, is kind of going from being like guilty to living guiltlessly. Um, and, and looking at Saul's life as an example of this. Um, so again, these are the texts we're going to be looking at. We know that uh, from Acts 22 uh, that he is a student of a man named Gamaliel. Uh, we don't know a ton, a ton about this Gamaliel, but apparently he was a prestigious Jewish teacher. Uh, we see him arise in Acts chapter 5 as one that gives reasoning for why they should just kind of take a step back, hands-off approach to this whole Christian thing and just kind of let it play out. He's the man that says, you know, if this is of God, we can't stop it. And if it's not, it'll die out. Right? That's the man that Saul had apparently studied at the feet of. And so we know that he is uh, intelligent. He's a learned individual. We also know that he, in his own words... And Acts 26 says that he's a Pharisee among Pharisees. He's like the most strict, most concerned, most focused Pharisee out there, right? Like he's as good as anybody is at being a Pharisee and following the, the law as he understood it. In fact, in chapter 22, we find out that he was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. He's brought up in this city um, in uh, Acts 22 and Acts 26, we know that, and given from what we've read already, we know that he is a persecutor, but even those that knew him appreciated his persecution. Like he seeks out letters and they give approval for what he's doing, right? So he's well known. He's appreciated for, like, I guess you could say it this way, the service he's offering his countrymen, his fellow Jews, right? And uh, he is personally, right, hostile to the believers that he encounters. Um, he's not hostile in principle alone. He's hostile personally. Um, he pursues uh, punishment for them. And so we see basically the portrait of Saul as he's religiously zealous. He's a man who knows the laws. He does his best to keep them. Um, but, you know, ultimately, like that stuff, what we see in Saul's life doesn't erase like the mistakes and the sins that exist for him. Um, Saul in Acts 22 and 26, where I drew most of this description of himself from his own words, is reflecting in those texts about the transformation that, that Jesus presents to him, offers him. And as much zeal as he had, as, as strict as he was about doing the right thing, what we're going to see in Acts chapter 9, if you're not back there, go ahead and turn there, is that Jesus didn't say that that made him okay. You know, I think my temptation in life is often to think I'm doing the best that I can with what I have, which is what Saul was doing, right? In his mind, he was doing exactly what he knew to do. But Jesus didn't approach him, as we're going to read in Acts 9, and say, you got it right. You did the best you can, right? Let's look at Acts chapter 9, and let's just read this account here. Um, like I said, I'm sure we've read this before. If you haven't, please pay attention to uh, what actually happens. So picking up in verse 3 of Acts chapter 9, because we read the first two verses already, 
This is Saul. As he, Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you're to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings of the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So that's, that's the account of Saul's uh, immediate transformation, really the beginning of his walk with the Lord as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus, according to Acts chapter 9. That, I think, is the, the Holy Spirit, God's record of the events that took place. And as we look at this, we're thinking, all right, so, so Saul, being a really like zealous persecutor of this Jesus, goes from the beginning of this chapter, still breathing threats and murder, to the end of the chapter... Uh, receiving Ananias, being baptized, accepting kind of what's happened to him, and moving on from there as a, as a Christian. And so everything in between, I think, is really important for us to see and to understand how someone like Saul could start in that place and end where he ends. Like, what happens in the middle? Like, what do we need to learn from this encounter uh, as important? First of all, I think we need to understand that obviously the Lord sees Saul as sinful, as guilty, right? But I think it's really important that the Lord shows Saul that he's guilty. Um, Like I mentioned before, Saul, I think in his mind, and I think fairly so, you could say he was doing exactly what he knew needed to be done. I mean, in the law, when false teaching arose... Not to speak for the systems that the Jews had in place under Rome, but in the law, if there were false teachers and leading people away from the Lord, false prophets, we might say, that was grounds for a stoning. You know, what happened to Stephen in the eyes of those who thought they were right was the appropriate response. Um, And so it's important to see how Jesus approaches 
Saul in this moment. Look what he says uh, in verse 4. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Let's just stop there for a moment. The idea of persecution, right, is to inflict harm, is to suppress that kind of idea for a belief system, for an opinion, for an action that someone takes. Um, And so what is being levied here is an accusation. Um, We need to understand that for God to appear and say that you're persecuting me on one hand is like not true because he's God. He can overcome anything. But on the other hand, speaks to Saul's intent, right? Speaks to Saul's actions. And so certainly if we were to say, let's say it this way. If God were to appear to any one of us and say, Josh or Richard or Angela or Aretha, you are fighting against me. Would we say that that is a sin or not a sin? And that's really what Jesus is saying when he says, why are you persecuting me? He's not necessarily only just begging Saul to stop hurting him. He's saying, you're fighting against me. In fact, in the text later in Acts, when Saul is recounting this, he actually mentions Jesus saying, why are you kicking against the goads? Which is almost more of that idea. Like, I'm prodding you one way. Right, like cattle, and you're fighting it. You're fighting the way that I've laid out. In fact, the Christians at this time, as we've seen in this text, have been referred to as the way. Right? So God is saying, I want you to go down this way, and you're fighting it. Right? Well, ultimately, we know anytime we oppose God, that's a sinful thing. Right? To oppose the Lord is a sin, to, to be guilty of that sin. And so Saul needs to understand he is guilty of fighting, right? He's guilty of resisting the Lord's way. And so it's important. Why are you persecuting me? Uh, it's hard to kick against the goads, as he says later. Uh, it's important for Saul to realize this. So first of all, Saul needs to realize he's guilty. Saul also needs to realize that, like anyone guilty, he needs to be redeemed, right? He needs to have a sacrifice made for him. Now, Saul's understanding of that, of course, would be maybe a burnt offering, maybe some sort of Levitical system and action that has to occur. But what Jesus is presenting to him in Acts chapter 9 as being himself, I am Jesus, right, is a totally different plan. Um, and what I mean by that is there are shadows and there are mechanisms that seem similar and evoked meaning, but were different, right? Um, certainly... At the end of this chapter, verse 18, we see this quick little phrase here where it says he rose and was baptized. Acts chapter 2 gives us a little more meaning in that. Acts chapter 4, you continue to see it. In fact, let's turn to uh, Acts 22, one of our other texts here. Acts 22, verse 8. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Right? There's the guilt again. Verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? And he said, Rise, go into Damascus. You'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. Um, Ananias ends up coming to him and Paul or Saul's recollection here. And he ends up revealing that he wants him to be a witness. He wants him to preach the message. 
he ends up uh, saying in verse twenty, uh, verse fourteen. Sorry, this is really interesting. That the God of our fathers has appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. It's kind of this threefold thing: to know, to hear, and to see. Now, I don't want to oversimplify any like part of God's plan for Saul and being redeemed and being repurposed and transformed. Acts chapter 9 and just the account and like the narrative says, well, he rose and was baptized. And we know the meaning of that according to the teaching of God is being a new man, being forgiven of your sins, coming up to a new life, right? But in Acts chapter 22... They phrase it this way, to to know, to see, and to hear. Well, what has Saul really known up to this point? Certainly, uh, it's not what verse 14 says. He hasn't really known God's will. He's known part of it, right? It kind of stopped. He didn't take in the part with the Messiah. He hasn't really, according to verse 14 seen the righteous one until now right like jesus had to literally appear before him on a pathway and kind of blind him for him to have seen the righteous one and ultimately he hadn't really heard right in verse 14 uh, a voice of god's mouth and so really saul needs to understand his redemption god buying him back is going to involve all of these things You've gotten to see Jesus. You've gotten to know my will. And you've gotten to hear from my mouth, not from someone else's, what's required of you. Right? In fact, in Acts 26, this is elaborated on even in a different way. So we have kind of three accounts that are all saying basically the same thing, but they're saying it different ways. So in Acts 26, if you'd like to turn there, uh, another uh, verse 14 for us. When he had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So that's the same. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And if you skip on down to uh, verse 17, he says, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness and light. And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So we obviously there's like there's a personal aspect to this redemption, right? Saul needs to realize he's guilty. He needs to receive, as he says in nine, the Holy Spirit and this forgiveness. But also in chapter 22, he needs to be a participant in knowing the will of God and seeing the Lord and hearing from his mouth. But in 26, in this text, he says, and then you need to have a role in being sent out, right? And we knew he was going from house to house. He was willing to be sent, but he needed to be sent out for the right reasons. And in this text, it says, I'm sending you to open their eyes, which is kind of a startling thing, right? Because Saul, the way his eyes got opened was very like startling and kind of weird and like took a while, took some days, and he had to kind of be blind for a while. And so for God to say, like, 
I'm going to use you to open their eyes. Who knows what Saul's thinking, you know, in that kind of moment. What is that going to be like? Am I going to have to be Ananias chasing down these other people in their various Damascuses? But God wants to use him. And that point isn't primarily just to have these weird scales falling off all these people's eyes as he travels around. The idea is that they may turn from darkness to light, which tells us really that's what was going on with Saul. It wasn't about the scales. It wasn't about Ananias or Damascus or whatever. It was about him seeing the righteous one, hearing or knowing the will of God, hearing from his mouth, and Saul himself turning from the darkness that he experienced into light. That, that imagery of now that he knew the truth and the scales falling away was God's way of saying, okay, now you've been transformed and now it's your time to do the same for other people. Okay. And so ultimately, Saul's guilty. He realizes his guilt. He sees the need for redemption. God certainly redeems him. And so now we have to ask the question, okay, so what all goes into Saul doing all that to being able to say what he said in chapter 24, that he had lived it with a clear conscience? Um, I think, I don't know if I have a perfect answer for this, but I'll give you what I think scripturally kind of the direction that it points us to. Like I mentioned earlier, Saul did everything that he knew to do. When he knew the law, he did the law. When he saw false teaching, he resisted it and fought against it. Right? And then when Jesus appeared to him and showed him the righteous one and taught him his will and he heard from his mouth in chapter 9, he hears, he's baptized, and he had been fasting for three days as a reflection of his spiritual poverty i think he realized the errors that he had made and he takes food and he takes strength and we actually as you continue in chapter 9 you see him immediately going to spend time with brethren in damascus we know that there's some time where he's alone from like galatians but we see him spending time with other believers right at every stage in saul's life it seems like whatever knowledge he had he pursued the right thing according to that. And so it's important to know that like Saul doesn't say in Acts 24 that he's lived a clear conscience because he's never made a mistake. That's obviously not true, right? I think he can say that because in every phase of his life he's given everything of himself to the pursuit of God. Sometimes he was wrong about it, and thankfully he got it right. The Lord revealed that to him. And so uh, living guiltlessly is not about living perfectly in the strictest sense. It's about giving all of yourself to what you know is right all the time. Right? And so uh, God provided Saul what he needed to, to move past his sin. That was forgiveness. That was the opportunity to know Jesus and to be used, right? To be used for for turning other people around just like he was. So God revealed Saul's sin. He sent Ananias to Saul. These are all the things God did for him. He sent Ananias to him. He removed Saul's blindness. He filled him with the Holy Spirit, according to 9.17. He forgave Saul um, in baptism, 9.16, And then Saul could have kind of had all these things happen to him, could have, and then just done his own thing 
right? He could have met the Lord on the way to Damascus and rejected all of it. He could have, for a moment, turned around and then when the scales came off, said, peace, I'm doing my own thing. He could have, but Saul's response to all the provisions of the Lord were that he received Ananias. He was indeed filled with the Holy Spirit. He was indeed forgiven of his sins in baptism. He did eat the food and take strength again. Right? He did reverse course, so to speak, and begin promoting Jesus. You know, He went to Damascus as a persecutor and ended up staying to encourage the very ones that he had come to hurt. You know? So he did reverse course. And so when God provides opportunities for Saul to grow, to change, to be transformed, Saul can say, I had a clear conscience in everything I've done because he took them. He took them. You know, a lot of us, we, we struggle with the guilt that comes with making the mistakes and having sin in our lives from the past or currently or whatever because we don't take the opportunity when we have them, to pursue the Lord wholeheartedly. And that we should have guilt when we don't do that. Oftentimes we say, oh, I'm just so guilty. And, and we should be because we haven't actually pursued God the way Saul did. Now, some of us have guilt and we shouldn't. That's the other side of the kind of the same coin is we are standing in the place uh, figuratively that Saul is. We all have been transformed. We have been given all these provisions by God and we have been res- responding obediently to them. And we still look back on that and say, we can't say things like, I've lived with a clean conscience because we're eaten up by guilt and we second guess all of our moves. Well, we need to learn from Saul and know that if God has transformed us, if he has forgiven us and he's using us as a tool now, and we can honestly say I'm pursuing that with everything that I have like Saul did, then I should be able to say I've lived with a free and clean conscience before God. Does that mean I forget those things? Probably not. Saul didn't forget that he had done those things. But he could say that his conscience was clean, was clear of them. All of this is probably really simple. Um, I don't ever pretend to you know with a lot of my lessons to have like really profound points that no one's ever thought about before but i hope these are good reminders as we consider saul because i don't think very many of us have done the same thing saul has done and like you know in our spectrum of just like evil hurtful things we not a lot of us started as a saul you know we weren't like chasing down people who didn't believe the same way we did to hurt them and to imprison them So Saul's kind of an extreme example. So if he can go from one end to the other and say that his conscience is clean, then I should be able to do the same thing. I should be able to follow the Lord wholeheartedly and be able to proclaim the same. So Saul's obedience, you know, produced in him this transformation. It produced in him forgiveness. It produced in him being able to be used as a witness to other people like God intended. It produced a clean conscience. It produced um, all of these good, these good things that God wanted for him. And ultimately, as we see in uh, 26, if you want to look at this text again, this is kind of the last time we'll look at one of these three texts. 
In chapter 26, this is what it says in verse 18. This is uh, Paul speaking of his conversion, Saul speaking, and he says in verse 18, uh, of God's mission for him is to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and that they, speaking of others, may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That is Paul's commentary on the mission that God had given him in his transformation. And he's defending himself at this point in the book of Acts. Some translations, and yours may very well have said this, at the very end of this, instead of a place among those, an inheritance among those who are sanctified, um, either is a fine translation. I like the idea of an inheritance. I just like that word because we see that's true. Like in Ephesians chapter 1, right? Certainly, we as believers have an inheritance in the Lord, right? And there's so many ways in which that's true. The ultimate sense is we think that we get to be with God, right? We believe that we get to dwell with him, and that's our inheritance as children, right? But ultimately, there's another sense that we don't often think about in, a, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 18. It says, Paul actually says, the same guy that is giving this commentary, he says in, in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his, God's, inheritance in the saints. Part of Saul's mission in his transformation was influencing others by his own witness to turn them to God. And what I see in chapter 26 when he's saying this is that they'll be given an inheritance or a place among those who are sanctified. That does two things. One, like I receive something. If, I, if I'm turned around and transformed, I receive an inheritance. But Ephesians is really telling us too, God gets his inheritance back. Like he's, he's purchasing us back. That's what a redemption is, right? I love to redeem coupons and free things. I do it all the time. As much as I can, I do it. God is redeeming his own, his inheritance back. And so when we're transformed, you and I, by seeing the righteous one, right? We know Jesus. We see him in the word. When we know his will, when we hear his voice from his mouth, we can be transformed like Saul was. We're given the same promise of, of uh, receiving the Holy Spirit. We're given the promise of forgiveness and baptism. We're given the promise to be used in many of the same ways as Saul was, to turn people to God, to be for his glory, so that they'll have an inheritance, yes, but so that we can grow the inheritance of God, that he can redeem back as many people as he can for himself. So how can I live with a clean conscience like Saul did? I have the same path in many respects to follow. I need to, to know and I need to see and I need to hear and I need to be forgiven and I need to receive the inheritance and receive the mission of God so that I can turn around and, and bless other people with that. And then I can say, I have a clean conscience. I have a clear conscience before the Lord, no matter what my beginning was. If that's what I do, then I can make that claim just like Saul did. So we're all Saul, really, right? Like we're all that. Now, some of us may still be the Saul of Acts chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, where we're still fighting the Lord. Some of us may be closer to that moment where Ananias is coming to like 
instigate the transformation. And some of us may be on the back end of that, where we're in Damascus and we're transformed and we're trying to encourage brothers and sisters and we're beginning our walk. And then maybe some of us are Acts 26, Saul, where we're defending, looking back on all these years of service, and we're saying, I've lived with a clean conscience. But we're all Saul. But we want to be the transformed Saul. We don't want to be the fighting against God Saul. So we're all guilty of sin. We all have a need for redemption. God does have a purpose and a plan for us. And God has provided what, us what we need to move past that and to be forgiven and to be used. So the question for us is, will we respond to the Lord's provisions and his uh, requests of us? And if so, will you be forgiven? Are you forgiven? Do you have a clean conscience? Are you a witness for God? And are you, have you received an inheritance? And are you helping others receive that as well? Hopefully those questions at the end give you something to, to think about. Um, I don't know everybody here intimately, like personally where you are with the Lord, but I'd hope that this lesson's useful for you. It was a simple one, just looking at Saul's life, but a pertinent one because really his story is all of our stories. That's how God wants to use us. So hopefully you'll think about this. Uh, Robin is going to lead us in a song here in a second. Really, the song is just encouragement for, for us to think about everything we've done today. If you have a particular need, whatever that need is, and you feel like someone here or all of us here can help you with that, please take advantage of that. This is the group of people you want to talk to. Um, we want to help you. So if there's anyone with a need, let us know while we're singing.